We are starting a new series tonight uh, in the book of Philippians. How many of you guys have ever read through the book of Philippians? Okay. Oh, we, we, someone likes it. Yeah, it's a great book. Um, it's, a, it's a little one, uh, but a, a wonderful one, um, as all, all 66 are wonderful. Um, but I, I'm excited to go through this book. I, I think, I hope, I pray that it will be a good follow-up to our study in Ecclesiastes. Um, as Ecclesiastes, we looked, well, for many we felt like it had a very negative tone, um, but we see that the whole thing was, uh, is there purpose, is there joy in life? And in the end, we saw, yes, there is in the Lord, uh, and to fear God and keep his commandments. And now here, we see a very joy-filled book. And we'll see that even tonight, and hopefully, Lord willing, uh, throughout our series. Um, I, please open up, if you haven't already, to the book of Philippians. It's in the New Testament. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. Most of you guys know that. And how many know what I'm going to say next? Going popcorn. Going popcorn. All right, good. Going popcorn. So this is the, the P in the popcorn. All right, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So that's how you can find it. Going popcorn. Um... Our main focus will just be on the first two verses this evening. I do want to read the first eight verses. That was my initial intention. Then I just felt like I needed to split it into two. Uh, so we'll focus on the first two verses tonight. And then next week we'll do three through eight, I believe. Let's see what happens. Um, so let me read. If you would please follow along, Philippians 1, 1 through 8. Again, our main focus will be first couple verses. As we read the first couple verses, especially keep in mind the emphasis of Christ Jesus. As we read throughout, keep in mind the emphasis of Christ Jesus and joy. Okay. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you all are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. We'll stop there tonight. Let me pray. Uh, ask for the Lord's help in this time as we approach his word. God, we ask for your grace. We ask for your help. God, give us understanding. Illuminate your truth to us. Convict our hearts. Change us. I pray that we would approach your word in humility and in worship. Lord, I pray that you would use me as your servant, use me despite my weaknesses, that I would clearly communicate your truth. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, mind to understand, a heart to receive your truth. Lord, would you change us tonight, we pray in Christ's name, amen. How many of you guys have ever had, like, one of those giant jawbreakers like this big? Okay, only one of you, a couple of you? All right, how many of you guys at least know what I'm talking about? It's a giant white ball that's speckled. Okay, you understand? Okay, so you've seen them. When I was younger, it was like a much bigger deal than I think they are now. Um, but I remember, like, just seeing these giant jawbreakers. They're called jawbreakers because you can't just bite through it. It would what? Break your jaw. Good job. Good job. And so what you have to do is like just keep licking it and licking it and licking it until you get to the middle. The problem is, is that it would take so long, like at least in my circles, no one knew what was in the middle of the jawbreaker. Like people would be licking and licking it so much, like your whole face would turn white because you would be licking it so much. And then like your tongue would hurt. And, and so you didn't know. Like you get a few layers in. Like first you lick off all the white stuff. You know, the white speckly on the outside, and then like, oh, it's a layer of blue. And then, oh, a layer of green. And 
yellow. And it's just layer after layer after layer, but you don't know what's in the middle. And all, all my friends, none of them were committed enough to see what was actually at the center of this giant jawbreaker. And I was committed. I said, I, I don't care if my tongue falls off. I will find it. I'm now thinking about it. Probably just going to throw it with a hammer. But, or like run it under a faucet, or like anything else. But I spent hours, days, years, decades. Oh. Yeah, it, it got gross. I remember I put it in like a Ziploc bag after I was done, and I come back to it like a couple days later, and I'm like, nasty, gross. Anyways, besides the point. Eventually, I got to the core. Has anyone gotten to the core of a giant John Breaker? Okay, I don't know what's in it anymore, but when I was there, what, what, what was in the middle? What is it? Yeah, it's like a, like a little, tiny, little gummy thing. Yeah, that was my response to it. I was very disappointed by the end result. I was like, all of that just for a tiny little gummy thing? It wasn't even like a good gummy. But the mystery was solved, and so I was satisfied with that. Because all of us were wondering. I mean, I was a cool kid on the block. Look, guys, look at the middle of this job right here. Look at this tiny little gummy that no one was interested in. But the point was this, that no one knew what was at the center of it. It was a giant mystery in my neighborhood, my side of the tracks, and, uh, but we solved it. And in a similar way, one could, not taking yourself back into Paul's time, one could see the circumstances of Paul's life, who's the author of this book, and one could read the words of Paul, and look at these two things, his circumstances, and then read his words, and one can wonder, how on earth does this person write these words? What, what is it about this guy? What is different about this guy? What is at the center of this guy's heart that causes him to be able to write these words? And it could be a mystery to many people. However, as we go through this letter, we will, kind of like the jawbreaker, we will go through layer after layer and we will get an in-depth look at the center of Paul's heart. And as he reveals his heart, it is revealed that Christ is at the center. And therefore, because Christ is at the center, his heart is filled with joy. What we will see is that living a Christ-centered life, as in having Christ at where? The center of your life, good, the tracking, naturally will fill your life with joy. Naturally will produce a joy-filled life. They go hand in hand. To have Christ at the center naturally fills you with joy. And what is shocking, and what makes these words of Paul, I think, even more powerful, is the fact that Paul is in prison when he is writing this letter. Paul is in chains in Rome. Literally, that is where he is. And yet, despite his chains, he is still filled with joy. And we're going to see that over and over again throughout the book. Joy after joy after joy. In fact, a lot of people refer to this book as, as, as the joy book because of how often Paul talks about joy. He uses some form of the word joy about 19 times in this small four-chapter letter. Whether it's rejoice or joy, it's just littered with the word joy. And how is it that Paul can be filled with so much joy? It starts with Christ. It starts with the fact that Christ is at the center of everything, of his entire life. See, Paul's joy is not rooted in riches. It's not rooted in his comfort. Paul's joy is not rooted in his circumstances. If it were, then he would have no joy. He's in prison. He doesn't have riches right now. He doesn't have comfort right now. He doesn't have good circumstances right now. But instead, his joy is rooted in Christ. In his letter to the Philippians, he is saying, keep Christ at the center and be filled with joy. Well, in these first two verses, in, in this small greeting here, we see how Christ is at the center of his life. And therefore, he can't have a joy-filled life. And 
And I'm taking that in the context of the whole letter, not necessarily saying that was his intent for these two specific verses. But I'm taking what he's saying in these first two verses in the context of what he says right after, which I read, in the context of the whole letter. So in other words, you can have a joy-filled life by living a Christ-centered life. And so tonight we're going to look at three aspects of a Christ-centered life that creates a joy-filled life. All right? Three aspects of a Christ-centered life that then creates a joy-filled life. And the first of which is that Paul and Timothy identify themselves as slaves of Jesus Christ. Slaves of Jesus Christ. Paul is the author, although he mentions Timothy as well. Timothy was with Paul, and it's very possible that Timothy is the one who actually penned this letter. That Timothy was, was like a secretary for Paul, as he is in chains. And of course, Timothy was a crucial partner of the gospel with Paul. You see that throughout the other letters. Right away, Paul identifies themselves as slaves of Jesus Christ. Now, your version may say servants. Might have, in fact, that's what I read. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And that's not a bad translation. That word can be translated as slave or servant. And in this time period, in this context, a slave would often look like what servants look like for us today. All right, so, so in some ways, slave and servant can be interchangeable. Now, no doubt that there was an abuse to their slaves. I'm sure there were slaves and there were servants that were abused. But we shouldn't think of slaves like how we think of Americans had slaves in the 1700s, 1800s. Don't think of it that way. Although I do think that's why a lot of modern translations will use the word servant instead of slave. Because what we know as servants today is more in line with what slaves were like back then. And so in the translator's minds, when we see the word servant, it might communicate that meaning better for our modern-day ears. Whereas slave can be misleading for our ears today. But that being said, I, I'm using the word, as I say slaves of Christ, I'm using the word slave because I think we need to understand properly the degree in which Paul is saying that he is a slave to Christ. There are a lot of implications here in which their slave-master relationships are similar to the Christian's relationship with God. Therefore, Paul says he is a slave of Christ Jesus. And if you are a Christian, you are no different. You, too, are a slave to Christ. So I want to examine three ways in which the Christian is a slave of Christ. All right? First, we see that the slave of Christ is owned by Christ. The slave of Christ is owned by Christ. There's this idea here, this, Paul saying that in Timothy that they are slaves of Christ Jesus, there's this idea of ownership. Paul understands that he is not his own, but that he belongs to someone else. And naturally, we so much want to fight against this. We, we want to be independent. We want to be our own. But the truth of the matter is, you are a slave to someone or something. Everyone in this room is. Realize that? You are. Romans chapter 6 talks about the slavery and says that if you are not in Christ, you are a slave to sin. That you obey sin. You are bound by your sin. You see, you, you are a slave whether you realize it or not. If you're not a Christian... You are not free. You are a slave to sin. See, that, that is so much an argument against Christianity. People reject Christianity because they say, Oh, I don't want to be bound to this. I, don't, I want to be my own man. I want to be my own woman. I, I know. I, you are so bound by your Christianity, blah, blah. The non-Christian is, is, is the one who is bound. They are bound to their sin. They are a slave to their sin. But those in Christ have been set free from the bondage of sin, and they are now slaves to Christ. And as Romans 6 says, they are slaves to righteousness. And to be a slave to Christ means that you are owned by Him, that you belong to Him. You see, the world wants you to think that's a bad thing. But in reality, it is the most joyful thing. And Paul here is filled with joy knowing 
that he is a slave of Christ. He doesn't say this in his introduction. He says, yeah, well, you know, everything's great except this part, the slave to Christ. No, he, he's saying, even saying that he's filled with joy knowing that he's a slave to Christ because it's an honor to be Christ's slave. In fact, even in ancient times, who you were a slave to or, or who your master was, in some ways, was a status symbol. Maybe similar to people's occupations today. For instance, and I'm not trying to diss anyone who may have a job at McDonald's. That's fine, McDonald's. That's fine, that's fine. What's wrong with that, right? But it'd be similar if someone was like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, I work at McDonald's. Like, you know, they wouldn't, like, boast about that all the time. Versus someone who would say, yeah, oh, yeah, I work at the White House. Like, I work for the president. Right? Like, that, that would be much, like... You wouldn't go around and be like, hey, guys, did you guess what? I'm working at McDonald's. Like, oh, that's fine, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. You can work there, that's fine. But if someone was like working at the White House, like you'd be telling everyone, oh, did you do our work at the White House with the president or whatever. Like, think of some like, crazy status, like someone that would be like incredible to work for. Like, you'd be bragging about that. Be a status symbol. There's a difference in that perception. There's a difference in status, in, in honor. In the same way, someone may look at a slave, let's say even back then, they'd say, oh, you're, you're a slave to that guy? Like, ooh, like things are going rough for you. Versus, oh, you're a slave to the king? What? How did you get that? Like, you're, that's incredible, you're a slave to the king? Like, that's a big deal. And Paul's saying, we are slaves to the king. And we are slaves to Christ. And what greater honor is that? They forget being a, a, a servant in the White House. If you're a Christian, you are a slave to Christ, the king of the universe, the king of all kings, the king of kings. So if you're a Christian, Christ is your master. You are owned by Christ. You are a slave of Christ. There's no greater honor than to belong to Christ. So it implies ownership. Next, the slave of Christ lives in humble service to Christ. The slave of Christ lives in humble service to Christ. You see, being owned by Christ means that you serve Christ. And that should be obvious. Because who else would you serve? Let's just think about that. Like, if you are owned by Christ, if you are a slave of Christ... Who else would you serve other than Christ, your master? Like, would you serve a different master? You're owned by Christ. Serve him, of course. Christian, you were once a slave to sin. So will you just, like, go back to your old master and serve your old master of sin? No. Serve the one who freed you from the chains of death. Don't go back and serve sin. Don't go back and obey your old master. Serve Christ. And the service is a humble service. It's an attitude of humility. Understanding who you are and understanding who Christ is. That he is your master and that you are his slave. Your life is a life that serves him. And this is not a, a begrudging service. It's not a, a burdensome service. It's not even a, a service of obligation. But it's an honor to serve Christ. It is a joy to serve Christ. Remember, that is the overarching theme here. Everything here is infused with joy. It's a joy to serve Christ. It's a blessing to serve Christ. I've used this illustration a long time ago. And I'm completely, 100% stealing it from John Piper in his series a blazing floor, a blazing center. Is that what it's called? Blazing center, I think. Um, and he uses it in context of Christian hedonism. I'm going to take it in a different context, a virgin purpose, I should say. But this is what he would say. I'll personalize it for me. Imagine uh, one day I decide to go up to my house. And I have a dozen red roses and. I knock on the door, on the front door. I don't knock on my own front door. I have a key to my own house. This time I knock on the door. 
And Katie answers the door. That's my wife. <laughs> Katie answers the door. And I say, Katie, here's a dozen red roses for you. And, and we're going out tonight. Put something nice on. I got a babysitter. We're going to go out to dinner. And I, there's nothing that brings bring more joy than to spend time with you and take you out to dinner. And she says, she says, oh my goodness. Oh, why did you? And I say, this is my duty to do so. <laughs> I took discipleship training program at our church and it says to be a good husband. And so I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And so this is my duty as a husband. So let's go. <laughs> Versus Knock, knock, knock. Oh, is it for you? I'll take you to dinner, blah, blah, blah. Oh, look, why did you? <laughs> and I say, because nothing would bring me more joy than spend time with you. Because I love you. See, the first example is what? It's out of obligation. It's, because I have to. It's my duty. It's, it's I gotta be a good husband, so let's go. It's out of obligation. The second example is what? It's out of love. It brings me joy. It brings me joy to buy you these roses. It brings me joy to, to make plans so we can spend time with each other. See, in the same way, when we serve Christ, it should not be, well, I'm serving, because that's the Christian thing to do. Yeah, I'm going to make these sacrifices because, yeah, that's what I was told. I, I should do this. It's my duty as a Christian to give in the offering. It's my duty as a Christian to go to church on Sunday. It's my duty to, to just read through my, my, my chapter a day in my Bible so I can do my daily devotion or whatever it might be. No, it should be nothing would bring me more joy than to serve you, my King, my Lord. My Savior, it brings me joy to live for you. See, the Christian service is, is not, I have to serve Christ. I guess I'll do this because that's what I was told to do. No, it is, I get to serve Christ. There's nothing more that I want to do than to serve you. It's my greatest joy to serve you. See, there is joy in serving Christ. Because you love him. Do you have joy in serving Christ? Do you have joy in living for Him? Do you have joy in sacrificing for Him? Do you have a desire to serve Him? Are you so enwrapped by your love for Christ that you want nothing more than to serve Him and to live for Him? There is joy in being a slave of Christ. There's joy in serving Him. This is why Paul can still have a joy-filled life even though he's in prison. Because he's living a Christ-centered life. Because there's joy in living for him. And lastly, for the section of slaves of Christ, we see that the slave of Christ has absolute dedication to Christ. The slave of Christ has absolute dedication to Christ. Living for Christ will come at a cost. But Paul says it's worth it. It doesn't say that here in these two verses, but we'll see it throughout. That is absolutely, without question, worth it. Paul is fully dedicated to serving Christ. In fact, this is what got him in prison in the first place. It is because of his dedication to Christ that he is now in chains as he's writing this. But even so, we will see throughout this book, Paul says, oh, it's worth it. It is all worth it. To be a slave of Christ is to be fully dedicated to him. We don't serve two masters. The slave does not have two masters. The slave has one master, and we serve him, and we are dedicated to him, to Christ. And one of the main things in this book, we, we, you can hear it a little bit as we read verses 3 through 8. We'll see it all throughout. One of the main themes is the advancement of the gospel. In fact, the word gospel is mentioned in this book more than any of Paul's other letters. 
All throughout this letter, Paul exhorts his church to be partakers of the advancement of the gospel. And if we are to be absolutely dedicated to Christ, that means that we are dedicated to the advancement of his gospel. This is Christ's desire. This is Christ's goal for us. We cannot be absolutely dedicated to him and ignore our role in the advancement of the gospel. But instead, we must be active participants in the proclamation and the advancement of his gospel. And sometimes that will come at a cost. Sometimes that will cost you time. It will cost you comfort. It will cost your finances. It will cost your energy. It will cost your friendships. It may cost you a lot. It requires you to deny yourself daily, to pick up your cross, to follow Him. A life of absolute dedication comes at a cost. But Jesus is worth it. He is worth living for, and He is worth dying for. Do you believe that? Is that true for you? Are you in Christ? Are you a slave of Christ? If so, that means to be absolutely dedicated to him. So first we see the slaves of Christ. Second, what we see here are the saints in Christ. Saints in Christ. In verse 1, he says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus. And he addresses this to all the saints in Philippi. And a saint is another word for a Christian. It means holy one. Now, sainthood is, is not another degree of your faith. Let me be clear, because that is a, a, a bad doctrine. It's, it's not that, that there are Christians and then there are super-Christians or, or extremely mature Christians that are called saints. Everyone is a Christian, but if you're super-mature, then you're a saint. You have sainthood. No. If you are a Christian, you are referred to as a saint. You are a holy one. And there are three aspects of being a saint in Christ Jesus that I want to focus on tonight. The first is this. To be a saint means to be in Christ Jesus. To be a saint means to be in Christ Jesus. And this is essential. To be a saint, to be a Christian, you must be in Christ Jesus. I'm going to wait people are writing down this. So I'm going to wait until people are done writing. Go ahead, you can write I don't want you to miss it while you're writing. It's very important. To be a saint, to be a Christian, you must be in Christ Jesus. To be a Christian is not to live a good moral life. You may be very well behaved. Most of you guys are pretty well behaved. You may be living a good life. You may know a lot about the Bible. You may be a faithful church attender. You may have all these things. But if you are not in Christ, you are not a Christian. See, Christ is the difference maker. Christ is the very core of the gospel. There is no gospel apart from Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ said that salvation is found in him alone. Salvation is not found in how well behaved you are. It is not found in how good of a life you live. It's not found in how much you have good church attendance. Salvation is not found in growing up in a Christian home. It's not found in doing Christian things. Salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. Without Jesus Christ, there is no gospel. In fact, if you add to Jesus Christ, there is no gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is Christ alone. And to be a saint, to be a Christian, means that you are in Christ. That your faith is fully and solely in Jesus Christ. In what he accomplished on your behalf. Period. That's it. The gospel of Jesus Christ 
says Christ is the only one, and he is the sufficient one to save you. You cannot add to the works of Christ. And apart from him, you have no salvation. And if you have received this in faith, then you are in him. Then you are in Christ. And you are a saint in Christ Jesus. Well, what else does that mean? Well, secondly, it means that to be a saint means to receive this joy. To be a saint means to receive this joy. This book is filled with truths of how the Christian can live a joy-filled life. That's why we're setting it up tonight. Right? Living a Christ-centered life, a joy-filled life. This book is full of that. But notice, it is how the Christian can live a joy-filled life. That's very important. He is writing this to who? Anyone want to take a guess? The Philippians. Yes, but specifically who? The Christians. Yes, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. The Christians, the church, as in the church, the believers. That's who he's writing to. All the saints in Christ Jesus. He's not writing this to the Roman Empire, saying this is how you can be joyful, Roman Empire. He's writing this to the saints. Paul offers encouragement and comfort and joy and peace. Why? Because these things are found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why he can offer this to the saints in Christ Jesus. But for those outside of Christ, remember the saints are the ones who are in Christ. And that's who he's writing to, the saints. But for those outside of Christ, those who have rejected the gospel, you will not find true joy. You will not find this. These spiritual blessings in which Paul describes are for the Christian, for the ones in Christ, for the saints. If you are not a Christian... Do not think the promises and the blessings for the Christian is for you. It's not. It's for those in Christ. And you are not in Christ. In addition to that, do not think that you can find these promises and these blessings of Christ in the things of this world. You cannot. Do not expect that you can be like Paul, that you can be able to, to, to have everything taken from you, just like he has everything taken from him, that you can be bound in prison, and yet you can still be filled with joy. If you're not in Christ, don't think that you can be like that. Paul can have this joy. Why? Because he has Christ in him. A Christ-centered life is a joy-filled life. You remove Christ from this equation. And there is no true joy like this. So where can you find this true joy? In the gospel. In Christ. And so even if you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're not a Christian, there is hope for you. There is hope because the gospel of Jesus Christ is available to you. For all who repent and believe will be saved. If you're not a Christian, do not think, do not think that, that you are outside the reach of God. That He would never love you. That you could never be saved. Because by the grace of God, you can be saved. I ask that He would give you a heart of repentance and faith to believe. And while this kind of joy is exclusive, to those only who are in Christ, it is also all-inclusive to those who are in Christ. He says this is to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Not some of the saints, but he says all of the saints. And while he is speaking to the church in Philippi, these truths are true for every Christian. That if you are in Christ, you can receive this joy. It is to all the saints. And if you are a Christian, you are a saint, and so this is for you. And I know at times, even Christian, I know that it is hard to have joy. But in Christ, we can. Just 
like Paul can have joy in prison, so you can have joy in your suffering. In fact, we'll see, Paul says in chapter 4, that he had to learn to be content. See, the problem is not that if you're a Christian, you will always be joyful all the time. No. But the promise is that in Christ, you can receive this joy, that you can learn to be content because the Spirit is in you, because you are united with Christ, and because there is everlasting joy in Him, in Christ. So no Christian know that you can receive this joy from God because you are in Christ. The last part in this section, saints in Christ, is that to be a saint means to be set apart. To be a saint means to be set apart. In fact, the word for saint, I mean, that, that should be a given, because the word for saint is the same word that means holy or holy one. To be a saint means to be a holy one. To be holy, to be a holy one means to what? To be set apart. That's what holy means. Therefore, to be a saint means to be set apart. To be a saint does not mean that you're more holy than others. You realize that? To be a saint doesn't mean you're more righteous than others. To be a saint doesn't mean that you are living, uh, uh, living a saintly life. It doesn't mean that therefore you're a saint. Because look, I've been living like this. I've been living like a saint, so therefore I must be a saint. No, if you are a saint, if you are a Christian, it is because you have been set apart from God and he has saved you. That's what it means. To be a saint means to be set apart. It means that God has separated you from the rest. He has separated you from the world. That you have been set apart. That you are no longer in the kingdom of darkness, but now he has brought you into his kingdom of light. That you are no longer bound in sin like you were, but now you are free. You have been separated from that. You are free in Christ. It means you are no longer spiritually dead like you were, but now you have been separated from that and you have been made alive in Christ. It means you are no longer a child of wrath, but you have been separated from that. You have been adopted as a child of God. You see the separation? God has set you apart. As God has set apart the Christian, then what? The Christian responds by living a life that is set apart. That's the response. It is the mindset. It's the understanding that God has set me apart. He has set me apart from darkness. He has brought me into his light. That he has set me apart from this world. And he has set me apart into his kingdom. Therefore, I am to separate myself from the world. And I am to dedicate my life to living for him. That's what it means. To be a saint means to be a holy one. It means to be set apart. And while it is God who is the one who sets you apart, you don't set yourself apart. God sets you apart. It is important for us to evaluate and ask ourselves, what is our response to that? What is my response to God having set me apart? Am I living consistently with how God has positioned me? God has taken me out of the kingdom of darkness and into his light. Am I living in the light? That's where he's positioned me. He has set me apart. Am I living as if I'm set apart? Or am I living as if he had never moved me in the first place? Are you living like someone whose life is now set apart and revolves around Christ, you see? Are you living like someone who's, whose mindset is now kingdom-minded? Are you living like someone who is, who is now soldiering through this world, who's on mission for Christ? Because now this is not their kingdom anymore. They live for a greater kingdom. Are you living like someone who, whose life revolves around self? Are you living like someone who is earthly minded, who is making the world their home? Let me ask you, are, are you living just like everyone else in this world? Are you living like those who are not in Christ? If you're a Christian, you're saying, I'm a saint, I'm set apart. God has set me apart. Does your life reflect that? Or does your life reflect a life that looks just like everyone else, even those who are not in Christ? 
A saint is someone who is set apart. God has already positionally set you apart. Now by his grace and by his Holy Spirit, you may live a life that reflects your position. So may you live a life that is set apart. Or our last section. We'll try to go through this quickly. Grace and peace through Christ. Verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I do have three subpoints here. So hang in there with me. Thank you, guys. First, we have grace from God is the foundation of Christianity. What is God's grace? God's grace is his unmerited favor towards us. Right? That's the easiest, the shortest, I guess, concise way we could say it. God's grace is his unmerited favor towards us. What that means is we cannot earn God's affection. We cannot earn his love towards us. But instead it is given to us freely, without being earned, without it being deserved. That is his grace. And this is important for us to understand because everything in us wants to go against this. In our own self-righteousness, we want to say, well, surely there, there's something. There's at least just something I contribute to God's love towards me. That's why some are Christian and some aren't, right? That's why I'm a Christian and this other person isn't a Christian. Because there's something that I did that this person didn't do. That's why I'm a Christian and they're not. No, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a false gospel. God's grace means that his favor towards us is completely unmerited. We do not deserve it at all. If you compare two people side by side, let's say a Christian and a non-Christian, that Christian is not a Christian because he's any better in any way than the non-Christian. He in no way, I mean in no way, does that Christian, has he deserved or has he earned God's love? More than the non-Christian. Not at all. There is nothing that that Christian has done to deserve God's love. He is a Christian not because of any amount of goodness in him, but he's a Christian because God in his grace chose to love him and to save him. That's it. If you are a Christian, it's because God made you a Christian. Period. That's his grace. Not because... Somehow you did something or said something that this non-Christian did. It is by his grace. You see, the grace of God is what sets Christianity apart from any other religion. Because religion says that you contribute to your salvation. That you do things. That you say things. That you act a certain way to shift God's attention towards you. To gain his love. To gain his favor. In some way, even if it's minuscule. But God's grace says no. God's love is given to you, not because you've earned it any way. But God loves you purely out of the grace of God. Christian, why are you different than the non-Christian? Why are you a Christian and they aren't? One answer. Because of God's grace. That's it. There is no other answer. God's grace. Christian, why is God's favor towards you? Because of God's grace. That's it. Do you see what, what tremendous comfort and encouragement and joy that this ought to give you? That the almighty, holy, everlasting, perfect creator God is looking upon you with favor. That this God has a special and personal interest in you. That he loves you deeply. That he cares for you deeply. And this is by his grace. This is unmerited. This is undeserved completely. I mean, may I remind you what you have earned, what you do deserve? We have earned and we deserve the wrath of God. We have earned and we deserve eternal punishment, hell, enmity with God, condemnation. And yet, because of his grace, we are adopted into his family and we are brought into his kingdom and we receive his eternal, unchanging love. It is by his grace. That is the grace of God. 
What does this grace of God create? Our next point, grace from God creates peace. Grace from God creates peace. Scholars point out that the way in which Paul writes this, as he says, grace to you and peace from God, implies that the grace of God is what creates this gift of peace. That because of God's grace, the Christian can have peace both now and forever. Grace comes first, always, and then comes spiritual blessings, such as peace. And this grace creates two kinds of peace. A positional peace and an internal peace. Christians now have a positional peace with God. Remember, we are not naturally at peace with God. We are naturally at war with God. And for some, it may be displayed as active or it may be displayed as passive. You may actively be at war. You may say, yeah, I do hate God. I want nothing to do with Him. But I would say... Most people in here, if you are not a Christian, I would say it's probably more passive. You say, yeah, whatever, like, I'm okay with God, I'm neutral with him, like, I don't really care, I don't really think about it, it's whatever. But even that, regardless, either way, whether it's active or passive, if you are not a Christian, you're not at peace with God. This neutrality that you think you have is not. It is, you are at war with God. And in your natural state, you are an enemy of God. You are at hostility with God. But now he's saying those in Christ, because of the grace of God, you can confidently say, no, I'm at peace with God. That there is a positional change now. Once his enemies, what? What's the song say? Now seated at his table. Wow. Not only that, Christians not only have a positional peace, but they can have an internal peace as well. Because when you realize and you contemplate the immeasurable riches of his grace, when you realize God's favor is upon you, then you can say with Paul, if God is for us, who can be against us? You realize, I am a child of God, and God loves me more than I can even fathom. So whatever may come into my life, whatever my lot may be, I can say, it is well with my soul. How? Because I have an internal peace that comes from the grace of God. And so your life can be filled with joy, even through the dark times and the difficulties in life. By the grace of God, the Christian can have joy and peace in life. If you are in Christ and you feel that you cannot have joy and peace, I encourage you to go back to the gospel. And remember his grace. And ask God that by his grace he would grant you an internal peace that surpasses all understanding. We'll look at that in chapter 4. Lastly, we see grace and peace from God are made effective through Jesus Christ. Grace and peace from God are made effective through Jesus Christ. This grace and this peace which is given to us by God is made effective through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is what Christ has accomplished on our behalf in which results in peace given to us by his grace. How is it that we can have positional peace with God? Through Christ. The only reason we can no longer be at war with God, but instead that we can be forgiven and we can be at peace with God, is because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. It's because Christ took our place and he bore our wrath that we can stand justified before God. Our penalty has been taken. It's because Christ has given us perfect righteousness that we can stand holy before God, that we are made right through the blood of Christ. And so it is by God's grace and through the works of Christ we can be at peace with God. But how can we have internal peace in life? Say, through Christ. See, what we have in Christ gives us a new perspective in life. Because in Christ, we see that the things in this world, they are minuscule compared to what we have in Christ. Whatever circumstances are causing you to lose joy, Christian, you can go back to the gospel. And you can see what you possess in Christ, and you can realize you have much to be joyful about. Paul's in prison. His circumstances would cause many to lose joy. But his focus is so Christ-centered that he can be filled with joy 
because of what he possesses in Christ. See, Christ changes everything. By God's grace and through Jesus Christ, we can have peace. Well, as we begin, as we begin this series in Philippians, we see in Paul's greeting towards this church a key theme in this letter. Living a Christ-centered life creates a joyful life. And we will see throughout this book that Paul is filled with joy. And he encourages the Christian to also be filled with joy. And how can Paul be so joyful? Paul's in prison. His circumstances are bad. One would look at his life and conclude he does not have much to rejoice in. So how can he be so filled with joy? The reason he can be so joyful is because he has Christ at the center of his life. See, Christ changes everything. While his circumstances have changed, while things have become difficult, while he's experiencing suffering and trials, Christ has not changed. And what he possesses in Christ has not changed. Therefore, whatever circumstances might be changing around him, what is established in his core, Christ, remains. Because Christ is at the center of his life. He can have a joyful life. What does that look like? What does it mean to have, a, have Christ at the center of your life? I think it starts with the gospel. It starts with placing your faith in Jesus Christ. See, the gospel does not just affect the, the penalty of your sins. The gospel changes your whole outlook on life. The gospel rearranges your priorities in life. The gospel rearranges what you find important in life. When the gospel of Jesus Christ is put at the center of your life, everything else just revolves around that. It revolves around Him. And so the way you view your circumstances changes. What you prioritize changes. What is most important to you changes. Your goals, your pursuits, your aim in life changes. And no matter what happens, you can rest assured that the almighty, holy creator God loves you perfectly and infinitely. And there's no greater joy than having a loving relationship with God. And there's no greater joy than living in worship to Him. And so no matter your circumstances, when you keep Christ at the center of your life, you remind of these two truths. And I'll end this. That God still loves me perfectly, and I can live in worship to Him even now. Therefore, having a Christ-centered life leads to a joyful life. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would fill us with joy that is found in Christ. God, by your grace, may we have peace, may we have joy, and may we live joyfully for you. But we belong to you, and I pray that we would live our lives in joyful submission and obedience to you. God, would your spirit work in us, make these things true and lasting in our hearts, and may that result in a life of worship that glorifies you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat>